first five books of Moses, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. We're doing scenes from second Kings. We're not doing a verse by verse study, but we've been tackling a lot of the major stories. We're moving back to chapter four as we look at miraculous provisions in the ministry of Elisha. And we'll be looking at verses one through 37. Yes, it can be done. All things are possible in the Lord. So we can cover 37 verses. This is a narrative style. So these are going to be two stories with Elisha at the center of them as the spiritual prophet and two women with two different needs. The first story, the shorter of the two, is a woman in debt. She has a debt. Her husband dies and Elisha is going to come in and provide through, of course, the power of the Lord. The second story is about a tragic death of a child And once again, we're going to see the Lord's provision. These two women in these two stories, rather than running from the Lord in their trial, press into the Lord and go to Elisha for help, which is a key part of the story. But there's another thing that I want you to be thinking about in these accounts, and that is this, that there are gospel pictures in these stories, namely the debt that couldn't be paid and the death of a loved one. We have a debt that we could not pay. That is the sin debt that we owe to God. Jesus paid our debt in full. And we are dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians chapter 2. But Christ makes us alive through the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So we're going to see some gospel pictures here. Some application also for us as believers. The title is Miraculous Provisions, the Uh, section 2 Kings 4, 1 through 37. The two stories are the flow of oil supernaturally and the raising of the Shunammite son, as we'll get into them in a moment. So that's what's before us. Uh, We're not going to stand for the reading. We're going to jump right into the text. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. And uh, let's just pray one more time. Father, as we get into your holy word, may your word get into us. May it read us. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may see what you would say to your, spirit, your church by your spirit in this hour, Lord. We want to have ready ears to not hear, just merely hear, but to obey and to amend our lives in more in keeping with who you are and who you've called us to be. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the kindness and grace of our God appearing in the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the ministry that you have today as you pour out grace from the throne of grace. May you have your way among us, Lord. May you extend your hand and touch people right where they are. You know every heart, every need. We lay this time at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a certain woman, 2 Kings 4.1, of the wives of the sons of the prophets. The sons of the prophets, I pointed out to you, were some sort of uh, Bible college type students or in training for ministry individuals. They were called sons of the prophets. They show up several times in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2. And there were different locations for these uh, schools, if you will. So one of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, and she said, your servant, my husband, is dead. I want you to notice that the husband is described as a servant of Elisha, Uh, we conclude that Elisha was over all these different schools. As Elijah had been prior to passing the mantle to Elisha, now Elisha was over all these prophets in training, if you will, or those who were called to the ministry. And sadly, 
This woman's husband, one of these sons of the prophets, has died. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, so he was definitely a believer. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Now, the first thing that we see is the crisis of an unpaid debt, where the debt collector comes calling to what is now a widow. We would assume just by taking some, uh, you know, looks at the text and coming to some conclusions that she's a fairly young woman with a young family. This man, this uh, son of the prophet, in training for ministry, etc., suddenly dies. We don't know what the problem was. And in the second story, we're going to see someone rise from the dead. And we might ask the question from the get-go, why doesn't Elijah intervene and raise the husband from the dead? And why one miracle in one place in the second story and not in this first story? And my answer to that question is I simply don't know. But I do know this, that Ecclesiastes 3 says that we're born and that we die. And death is just a reality. It's one event for all mankind. Should the Lord tarry, if he doesn't come back in our lifetime, we're all going to face our mortality. The Bible doesn't ask the question, nor does it answer the question. But we do have a woman who's now left to basically try to figure out life on her own. And notice she says that the creditor's coming to get my two kids. Now, uh, for those of you who have dealt with any debt, and maybe you had a stretch in your life, maybe you're there right now where creditors come calling It's not a fun thing to go through. Uh, It it can be a very scary thing. You can feel pressure. You can wonder how things are going to get paid. And this woman, uh, if she didn't have immediate family, and it doesn't seem like she did, would basically be in deep trouble. And so think about two devastating losses. Your husband dies, and now the debt collector comes and says, I'm going to take your kids to pay off the debt that you cannot pay. Devastating. She would basically lose her whole family in a very short period of time. And these, sadly, are the kinds of tragedies that do happen in our world. There are people hurting all over the place. And things happen, and people die, and accidents occur. And it's hard to make sense of all these things, and especially when people are trying to do life without God. And so this was a ministry family. Ministry families are not immune to trouble. Uh, you can see that the son of the prophet, son, one of the sons of the prophets was married. So that tells us that though they were training for ministry, they lived kind of ordinary lives. They got married. They had family, which is much like modern pastors in a Christian church where we marry and we typically we marry and we live life in that way. But all of a sudden there was a loss and it's a difficult loss to make sense of why this guy, why now, why this difficult situation James Dobson some years ago wrote a book called When God Doesn't Make Sense, and he told a story of a plane crash that occurred. I believe it was three young Christian businessmen, very committed to the Lord. I think one of them was a doctor, if I recall correctly. And a plane crashed suddenly, tragically, and left young families without their dads, without husbands. And it was a very difficult thing and tough to make sense of. And, you know, uh, that, that was the premise of the book. When God doesn't make sense, what do we do then? And Dobson described a memorial service at a church for, I think, all three men. And people were giving, you know, testimonies and sharing thoughts and and so forth. And the memorial service dismissed into the parking lot. And Dobson said something strange occurred. All of a sudden, people looked 
up on a relatively clear day, saw a rainbow in the sky over the church. And right as they looked up, a plane was flying through the rainbow. And they, the people at that service felt like the Lord sent a little message, or maybe a big one. Even though you don't understand, they are safe in my arms. That's how it was interpreted. And of course, the rainbow signifying the promise of God, etc. And so there are things that certainly perplex. And this woman says, my husband's died. I'm, I'm coming to you. We see her pressing in. She says, he feared the Lord, but now the creditor is at the door. What do I do? In the ancient world, there were laws that if you owed a debt and you could not pay it, you could sell yourself into servitude. We looked at that when we looked at the law of the bond slave in the book of Exodus chapter 21. Some of you remember, you could, you could enter into a seven-year period of servitude. But in this case, these two sons would have to pay the debt. I don't know how old they were, but they would try to pay the debt off for mom. But basically, they would be, become the property of a master. And that's what she was facing. And so Elisha says to her, verse 2, what shall I do for you? The NIV puts it this way, how can I help you? If you have a New Living Translation, it says, what can I do to help you? Now, I love Elisha's heart, don't you? And this should be the attitude of all believers. We should be asking more, what can I do to help? Or how can I help you? Don't you think that would be transformational in the church if rather than being self-absorbed, which is really what the culture is all about, we'd ask more people how we can help them. Amen? How can I pray for you? What can I do to help? If we all do our part, and this congregation does an amazing job at reaching out to people. So Elisha, who's kind of a type of the Messiah to come, he's a man, but he's a type of Jesus who's coming, says, what can I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant, notice how she describes herself, much like Mary did in the New Testament, calling herself the, the bondservant of the Lord. She said, your maidservant has nothing. If you want to know what's in the, in the cupboard, I have nothing in the house except a jar of oil. If we were to contemporize this, we might say, I have one jar of peanut butter left in the house. If you want to know what groceries we have, that's what we got. Years ago, David Hawking told a story. He was entering into full-time ministry, and he took a step of faith, had a young daughter. I think she was under two years old. And he decided he felt like the Lord was calling him into full-time ministry, so he took the step of faith. And he said that they were running really low on food. It was very tough. Early years of the ministry, not a lot of money. And he said he was cutting up the last hot dog to give to his daughter in her high chair. And he said, he, I, I got to be honest. He said, I was having a conversation with God. I got angry and I said something like this. I have sacrificed for you. I have gone into the full-time ministry by faith. I felt like you called me to do that. And I'm cutting up the last hot dog for my daughter. I don't get this. And he said he stormed out of the door of the apartment and tripped over several bags of groceries <laughs> that someone had left on his porch being nudged by the Holy Spirit. And maybe you've experienced something like that. You know, you grumble and complain only to see the Lord provide miraculously. Maybe not in your time, but of course in his. This story is a story of loss and fear. Yeah, here is a woman feeling like, you know what, if there is not a provision, I'm going to be left all alone. We know God has a big heart for the fatherless and the widows. 
Psalm 68, verse 5, James 127 says this is true religion when we reach out in that way. So she approaches the prophet for help. She turns to God, to the throne of grace, if you will. She might say something like was said in 2 Chronicles 20, we are powerless. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. That's 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. And so she's a contrast to the second story where we'll have a well-to-do woman who goes through her own crisis. And Elisha asks her, well, what do you got in the house? One jar of oil. Now, God will often start with what we have. Amen? Moses had a staff, and God transformed that staff. This woman has a one jar of oil. What do you got? And when what we have, we give to the Lord. He can do amazing things to multiply things in our lives. You all remember the scene when Jesus, you know, at some of the heights of his ministry, the crowds had swelled to thousands of people. They're out in a desolate place. And all of a sudden he realizes the people are tired and hungry. And he says, let's get them something to eat to the disciples. And they're like, oh, wait a minute now. Scholars think there's 15 to 20,000 people out there. And they're like, uh, Lord, send them, send them away. We, we, even if there was a drive-through, can you imagine? Uh, I need 20,000 fish sandwiches, 20,000 fries. And if I was ordering 20,000 chocolate shakes, can you make that quick? But you're in a desolate place. What do you do now? You give them something to eat. Lord, how, how could we do that? It's impossible. Take out the calculator. So apparently they went on a little mission to find out if anybody had some food. And there was a little boy there. Remember he had brown bagged it that day? He had five loaves and two fish. Kind of like maybe a little sardine type of fish. That's the number seven. And the little boy offered what he had. And you might say, oh, that's so cute. But what is that among so many people? <laughs> He's got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Some cheese puffs. But what's that going to do, right? Lord, what can this do with so many people? But you all know the story, right? The Lord had the people sit down. He multiplied it. It just kept coming. And the Lord took the, the lunch of a little lad and fed all these people. And you may remember, in the feeding of the 5,000, you know how many baskets of leftovers they picked up? It was 12. And 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. And I think Jesus was saying, I can take care of all of the tribes of Israel. He'll later feed 4,000. They'll pick up seven baskets. And most scholars believe it represents the seven Gentile nations. I can take care of Jew and Gentile. I've come to supply what the whole world needs. Amen? In Jesus Christ. And so he says, okay, go borrow, verse 3, vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors. They would have these empty vessels certainly sitting around, even empty ones. He says, uh, don't get just a few. Get the idea, a bunch of them. And you shall go and shut the door. Much of what God does, he does behind closed doors. When you go to your heavenly father, pray to him in the secret place. When you give, don't blow the trumpet. Do it in secret and the father will openly reward you. If you want public power, you need private devotion. Amen? Amen? Amen. If you want to see the Lord move in your life, you've got to spend time with him. There is no substitute for it. And so go close the door. And he says, basically, I want you and your sons to pour out into all these vessels. You shall set aside what is full. 
So the boys go and collect. They start bringing in the vessels. She went from him, shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing the vessels to her and she poured and she poured and she poured and she poured. And in the Bible, oil is a symbol of what? The Holy Spirit. And we are God's jars of clay. We are vessels, hopefully fit for the master's use. And every empty vessel that comes to Jesus and asks for his power, he will supply. Amen? Be ye kept being filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. If you ask for a filling, he will give it to you. He will fill you up to overflowing. Amen? With the power of God. And so it came about when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another. And he said to her, there's not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Flip over to 1 Kings 17. So uh, just a few pages back, 1 Kings 17. Elisha, of course, took the mantle of Elijah. There's a similar account in 1 Kings 17. It reads this way. It begins in verse 8. 1 Kings 17. 8 says, The word of the Lord came to him, saying to Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Stay there, and behold, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. And so he arose and went to Zarephath, verse 10. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour, this is a time of famine, in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. This is all we got. And Elijah said to her, don't fear. Go, do as you have said, make a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. Afterward, you make one for yourself and for your son. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. And so she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and, her, and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. There is a way that God can miraculously provide for us. It may not be in the same way uh, in every season, back to 2 Kings chapter 4, but God is a God of provision. And one of his great provisions in our lives is the power of the Holy Spirit, who keeps on giving. I tend to be a leaky vessel. Anybody else out there? Spring a few leaks along the way. And I need constantly to be filled and the great provision from heaven, of course, the gospel is God's provision to us, Jesus. But now, as we are believers, he continues to provide help and power from heaven. All you have to do is ask him. And every time you are empty, he will fill your jar, fill your jar, fill your jar. Amen? He will give you everything that you need. And so this miraculous provision happened, verse 7 
rounds out the story. She came and told the man of God. She came to Elisha. I'm sure very excited. You won't believe what happened. I kept pouring the oil. I kept pouring the oil. It kept coming and coming. And I think Elisha was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great, great. And he said, go sell the oil. Notice, pay your debt. That's what Jesus did for us at the cross. And you and your sons can live on the rest. I think of the power of the Holy Spirit there. And so the story is a beautiful one. The debt is paid. The family goes on to live. And God provides. Elisha becoming a type of Jesus. Story number two, the raising of the Shunammite son, beginning in verse eight. Now, there came a day, 2 Kings 4, 8, when Elisha passed over to Shunam, where there was a prominent woman. Now, in contrast to the first woman, this is a wealthy woman, well-to-do, and she persuaded him to eat food, the prophet, that is. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned there to eat food. Now, I don't have to be persuaded ever to eat food. Can I get a witness? Anybody else out there? <laughs> Nor do I ever have to be persuaded about dessert. If we're ever together and the question of dessert arises, you will know, I will immediately say, now is the right time. There will be no persuading needed. And so in ancient times when Elisha was traveling, this was a midway point between his hometown called Abel Mahala and Mount Carmel, where he apparently spent time seeking the Lord. It was kind of a halfway point. So the Shunammite woman uh, basically said, come on in and enjoy what came to be known as the restaurant called Shunabites. So just write that down for you now. What, you guys aren't buying that? <laughs> yeah, I know, it was a bit of a stretch. But anyway, there it is. Now, in Jesus' ministry, Luke chapter 8 tells us, this is verse 3, these words about Jesus. It says, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means or resources, Luke 8, verse 3. If you are wondering, how did Jesus do his itinerant ministry, traveling around, where did the resources come from? One of the main feeders into Jesus' itinerant ministry was women who had some means or resources and contributed to the work of the Lord. And I will say that ladies have been the backbone of much ministry that's happened throughout the years. Can I get a witness? Everybody just high-five your lady right next to you. You know, they, women, stood tall in the crucifixion accounts and in the resurrection accounts. And it's awesome to see uh, that here as well. And so the Shunammite woman calls him in and he eats. And she says to her husband, verse 9, Behold, I perceive that this is a holy man of God. She had discernment passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled upper chamber, verse 10. Let us set a bed for him there, a table and a chair and a lampstand. And it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. Now she goes to her husband. She says, I perceive this guy is a man of God, a holy man. Let's make an upper chamber somewhere up on the roof of their home. They were well-to-do so that they could do this. And I want to build something that came to be known, the prophet's chamber. I was reading J. Vernon McGee this week, and he said in his ministry, he traveled much of his, much of his pastorate throughout the whole United States. 
And he said, as he did, people would literally build or set up prophets' chambers. These were little rooms they had set aside for pastors, missionaries, evangelists, and the like. People would open their homes and their hearts, feed these people, and basically take care of them as they did ministry throughout the country so that they wouldn't have to pay for hotel rooms or motel rooms. Now, modern-day pastors are very much open to cabins in the mountains or beach houses, anything that, you know, the Lord would nudge you to do. I'll leave that. But I will tell you a quick story. So Elijah and Morell are here today, and, and I had the privilege of doing their wedding. We were in Tulsa, weren't we? Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so it was a beautiful wedding, and we enjoyed it. And uh, I decided that I would drive north about three and a half hours to visit uh, Topeka, Kansas, where we have a living truth. There's a living truth, Topeka, Kansas. It's pastored by a wonderful man named Eric Patterson and his wife is Melissa. And they pretty much do everything. They're, them and their kids do everything. It's not a big church. And they're, they're meeting in a historic building that the Lord actually provided for them. So uh, the wedding was done. I, I drove up north, uh, got to Topeka. It was pretty late at night. And I called Eric and I said, hey, uh, tell me, is there, is there a hotel room close to the church that you'd recommend? And he said, yes, I'd recommend Hotel Patterson. And so they opened up their home to me. And when I got there, they had a towel, a bar of soap. They had set it up almost like, uh, you know, a little Verbo kind of thing. And uh, they, they had called me when I was en route and asked me, I'm, we're at the store, what do you need? They bought you know, a couple things that I just had asked for. And it was just a beautiful time. The next morning, I worshiped with the church. And I had a wonderful time of fellowshipping with them for a little bit. And they said, we realize you're tired. Hey, turn in. We've got church tomorrow. And it was just a wonderful thing. And my understanding is that this is done perhaps all over the world. Can I suggest to the modern church, if you've never heard about this, if hospitality has been something far from you, you know, we're all called to be hospitable. We're to contribute to the needs of the saints. Romans 12, 13, if you're writing notes, practicing hospitality. We open our hearts and our homes to others. It's a way to reach out. It's a way to bless other people. 1 Peter 4, 9 says we're to be hospitable without complaint. So if you're going to do it, 1 Peter 4, 9, don't complain about it. Ah, we got to have these people over for dinner. Here they ate the last Oreo cookie. That was my cookie. Now, if you're going to be bitter about it, don't do it because you'll lose your reward and you'll lose the blessing. <laughs> but anyways, they, so they set up this, this prophet's quarters and uh, she has to, she obviously has the, more of a gift of discernment than her husband. So she says to her husband, let's do this. They make the upper chamber and so forth. And so Elisha has a place to call home in between his travels. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 10, 40 through 42. He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Matthew 10, 40 through 42. As you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. And so whenever we do something in the name of the Lord, 
cup of cold water. We open up our homes. We provide a meal. We do what we did for the church in Mexico uh, the last couple of weeks. It's a beautiful thing. And so one day, verse 11, he, Elisha, came there and turned into the upper chamber and rested. I'm sure he really appreciated having that hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2 says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for some by this have what? Entertained angels unaware. And so there's Elisha. And he said to Gehazi, big enough room to fit his servant as well, call this Shunammite. We don't have her name, but maybe that was a nickname that Elisha had for her. Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. That is, I think, before Gehazi this first time. And he said to him, say now to her, behold, you've been careful. You've taken or gone to all this trouble, ESV, for us with all this care. What? can I do for you? Would you take note? This is the second time Elisha has asked, what can I do for you? You have blessed me. What can I do for you? And I believe that this is something that we need to think about for a moment. Elisha represents the Lord. And I do believe that some of us need to understand that the Lord is always looking to bless us. What can he do for us? Now he'll do what's best for us. Amen. But he does want to pour out blessings. He does give us, 1 Timothy 6, 17, all things to enjoy. And so he says, what can I do for you? You've been such a blessing. Would you be spoken for to the king? Could we put in a good word for you to the captain of the army? And she said, she answered, I live among my own people. I think she's basically saying, I'm content. I have what I need. And so he said, what then is to be done for her? He asked Gehazi. It would appear that the first conversation was through his servant. I don't know why she didn't speak to uh, Elisha. It could be that maybe she had great respect for him and didn't want to talk to him. I don't know. But Gehazi answered, well, if you want to know, for a woman who seems to have everything, truly she, that is the Shunammite, has no son and her husband is an old dude. That's a loose translation. Her husband's older. She apparently is younger and she has no child. Now, in the story, we run into something called barrenness, and this is familiar to all seasoned readers of Scripture, because barrenness is something that happens quite often in the biblical account. For example, Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children. Rebecca, Rachel were also barren, Genesis 25 and 29, Elkanah and Hannah, Mr. and Mrs. Manoah. Uh, they all face this situation, and Zechariah and Elizabeth do in the New Testament. As in nearly all of these cases, says one writer, although the boy in the story is cherished, miracle birth, if you will, his life often is endangered. And so here's this woman, and Gehazi says, well, if you want a suggestion, she doesn't have a son, her husband's older, we would assume that he'll probably die before her, she'll be alone, this would be a wonderful thing to do. And so he said, well, call her. And when he called her, she stood in the door. I take the doorway here of the prophet's chamber. And he said, at this season next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, don't lie to your maidservant. If you have a new living, it says, don't get my hopes up like that. Maybe she had been disappointed before. Maybe she wondered if this could really happen in her life. In the Abraham Sarah story, you remember the same thing is, hap uh, is said at this time next year, you're going to have a son. 
And his name ends up being called Isaac or Isaac. And his name means, remember, laughter. And so every time they thought about it, there was a, a laughter, but I think a joyous laughter. And sure enough, the woman conceived and bore a son at, the, at that season the next year, as Elijah had said to her. Now, we have no commentary on the uh, snapshots of their lives, the, the pregnancy time, the, the giving of birth, the joy that this new life brought into their lives. But all of you who have had a child come into your life, a grandchild, a great-grandchild, you know how wonderful it is when new life comes into our lives. Amen? I mean, it's just such a, it's, it's like a, a breath of fresh air. There's a new joy that comes in. Sometimes, you know, as we live a long time, life gets hard. Maybe you feel even a little stale and laughter comes back into your life. And, and I like to fill in some of the gaps by saying, you know, there are probably times of just great joy and celebration. Uh, imagine, you know, uh, Elisha stopping by the prophet's chambers and, you know, giving uh, the, the little guy a little handshake and encouraging him and time went by and beautiful life moments that I would encourage you to take as many snapshots as you can because it goes by quick. Uh, for you young fathers, I was told this as a father of three boys, take a lot of snap, mental snapshots because before you know it, time will pass and they'll be all grown up and that time will pass. But then hopefully they'll give you grandchildren and then you can sugar them up and send them home as all of you. <laughs> you can get your revenge. Never mind. I want to show you a psalm. It's Psalm 113. We can put it up hopefully on the screen for you. Five through nine. God delights in blessing his people. Look at this. Psalm 113, five. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from the dust, Psalm 113, verse 7, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. And then it ends. Can we say it together? Praise the Lord, hallelujah. So when the child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father, probably a work day with dad, if you will, to the reapers. So the child has grown. One thing that we know from putting scripture together that the child can sit on the mom's lap and she can carry him. So he's not very old. I'm assuming that he's still under 10 years of age. And he goes out basically for a work day with dad. He's going out to the field with the reapers, etc. And he said to his father, 19, my head, my head. And he said to his servant, carry him to his mother, which is what all fathers say in a moment of crisis, right? Kid starts complaining about their head, scrape their arm. You send them to their mother. This is biblical. <laughs> Mark it down. Why do you always send the hurting child to me? Because the Bible says it right here. Might be a little, taking a few liberties with the text there. So they carried him to his mother. Before we move on, I want to tell you a quick story. There's a, a little leaguer from Tennessee. His name is Josiah Porter, if we can put his picture up. He's 12 years old. 
He is currently playing in the Little League World Series. How many of you have been watching the Little League World Series? Raise up your hand. It's a wonderful thing to watch. If you haven't been watching it, I would encourage you to repent and return to your first love, which should be baseball as a sport. So Josiah Porter, 12 years old, hit a grand slam on Thursday and helped his team from Tennessee to win a victory and uh, move into the title uh, championship game for the United States. They ended up losing to Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, the Hawaii team is just unbelievable. So good. So Josiah's father, Brandon, was interviewed by ESPN. And here's what happened. He, he said, we cannot tell Josiah's story or talk about his achievements without talking about Josiah's faith in Jesus. God had a big thing to do, said his dad, with all of this, keeping our focus on Jesus. When Jesus was walking on the water, like Peter, when he was walking on the water, said the dad. In the scriptures, we needed to be positive. I guess uh, dad is a former pastor. He said, that's been something for Josiah that's just critical to this story. In June 2017, when Josiah Porter was just shy of his seventh birthday, he suffered a devastating injury in his right eye. He was following his father across the street past a work truck when Josiah walked in the, into the corner of the truck's tool shelf, which cut deeply into his right eye. Dad said, I will never forget the screams. He was bleeding out of his eye. I got ice on him, put him in the truck, drove fast, too fast. He was holding his eye and crying. It was one of the worst days of my life. The doctor told Brandon, the dad, not to expect that Josiah would ever be able to see again. He said, I can't tell you how devastating a blow that was, said Brandon. Josiah was very active, talented beyond his, his peers. He said, uh, your mind starts jumping to the worst case scenarios like, will he ever play sports again? But God had different plans. Josiah had to stop being active for six months, endured five surgeries in order to prevent his retina from being detached. He also had periodically uh, getting his cornea scraped, uh, I think five different surgeries for that, to prevent calcium buildup. But now he's able to see some light through the injured eye. Doctors are saying there may be hope that he would see again in that right eye. But that right eye hasn't stopped him because he's been an, an awesome player in the Little League World Series, taking his team uh, with the others all the way to the championship game for the United States. They played a great game against Hawaii, they're all from Nolensville, Tennessee. And he faced these incredible odds and has done a great job. I watched him make a couple great plays in the outfield the other day. In an interview with ESPN, following Josiah's Grand Slam, dad recounted his son had injured his eye, but he said, we're a family of faith. We can't talk about the story without talking about Josiah's faith. Josiah stayed positive. Instead of focusing on the storm, the bad things, what he can't do, he focuses on what he can do. When the dad was interviewed, I watched the actual interview and the dad said, because all things are possible with God. Amen? ESPN needs to hear more of that, don't you think? ESPN needs to hear more faith stories. And so when he had taken him, he brought him to his mother, did the servant, verse 20, back in our text, text and he sat on her lap, on mama's lap until noon. And then tragically, he died. The mom took the boy. He was hurting. She probably didn't know what was going on. And all of a sudden, after hours on her lap, she, he keels over dead. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, up to the prophet's chambers, shut the door behind him, and went out. 
And then she called to her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. And he said, well, why will you go to him today? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. Apparently those were days when you would interact with the prophet. She said, it, it will be well, literally shalom. Why are you going to him today? Now what's wrong with the dad? The dad knew that the head was hurting. He doesn't ask any questions about the boy. The boy is behind closed doors, at least his body is. And so dad just asks, well, why are you going? Uh, it, it's fine, I'm going. And so she said, um, get stuff ready. So she saddled the donkey, 24, said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. Step on it, <laughs> pedal to the metal, baby. We're going. And so she went and came to the man of God to Mount Carmel, that famous mountain. And it came about when the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, behold, yonder is the Shunammite. Here she comes, and she was coming quickly, and I'm sure they had questions. So he said, run now to meet her, 26, and say to her, is it well with you? We might say, is everything okay? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she told Gehazi, it is well. Once again, shalom. Everything okay? Now, I'm sure her heart was pounding, but she doesn't tell Gehazi what's going on. She's going to put all her hopes in the prophet. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi, whose heart will come out in chapter 5, his greedy heart, maybe this is a sign of things to come, Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone. Her soul is troubled within her. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Now, several times in Jesus' ministry, remember, little children were being brought to him and the disciples said, hey, get those kids out of here. And Jesus said, no, let the children come to me for to such as these belong the kingdom of heaven. And he blessed them. Remember the woman who uh, cried on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And people were grumbling in themselves. Doesn't he know what kind of woman this is? And the woman with the alabaster vial breaks the perfume and anoints him for his burial. And Jesus, you know, they grumble. Oh, the money could have been given to the poor. And he says, leave her alone. She had discernment. She did this in light of my burial. And that story, of course, has been shared all over the world. So leave her alone, and she cleaves to the feet of the prophet. Don't push her away. Let me just say that when you come to the Lord in your moment of crisis, he will not push you away. People may push you away. Christians may even be rude to you. And I'm sorry if that's happened to you. But the Lord doesn't push people away. Amen? Anyone who comes to him in sincerity and says, Lord, I'm broken, I'm coming to your feet, he will in no way cast you out. And so she said, honestly, did I ask for a son from my Lord? Did I not say, don't deceive me, don't get my hopes up? Now right here, I know that if I know you like I know myself, perhaps you've said this to the Lord. Didn't I say, 
Maybe Moses at the burning bush is a good example. Lord, I told you I can't talk. Why did you give me all these whiners? I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask for these children. I didn't ask for that job. Anybody? Confession's good for the soul. It has a cleansing effect. I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask for that. What's going on here? And she basically says to Elisha, I told you, don't get my hopes up. You know, when we love well, when we put ourselves up there, out there for the kingdom of God, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it hurts. But I'm going to ask you a question. Are you willing to risk loving well even if you know there's going to be some losses in your life? Are you willing to get into the ring and even take a few punches for the sake of your king? Or are you going to sit outside the ring forever critiquing anybody else in the ring? It's an honest question. And so... She says, why? I think that's the undergirding question, why? And he said, Elisha said to Gehazi 29, gird up your loins, maybe because Gehazi is younger. Take my staff in your hands. Gird up your loins means kind of pull up the robe, get ready to run, and go your way. If you meet any man, don't salute him. Don't say hi to anybody. If anyone salutes you, don't answer him. And lay my staff on the lad's face. So you can imagine Gehazi, he takes the staff of the prophet and off he goes. And he's running as fast as he can. And the mother of the lad said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And he arose and followed her. She took off after Gehazi. And then the prophet was there. <laughs> Everybody's running. It's almost like the picture of people late for a plane in the airport, you know. <laughs> zoom, zoom, zoom. But the issue is much more desperate than missing a flight. The question is, is it too late? The question is, is there any hope? And so off they run. Gehazi, the woman, the prophet. And Gehazi passed on before them. Surely burst through the door, out of breath, laid the staff on the lad's face, 31. But there was neither sound nor response. So he returned to meet him and told him, he kind of met them where they were, went back out of the house and said, the lad has not awakened. You know, praying for miracles is, is a bit of a risk, right? Because I've prayed for many people and I will tell you, there's been many times that there hasn't been a miracle and there have been some miracles. And are we willing to risk it? I have a pastor friend who told me that his pastor some years ago, that a person died in their congregation. I think it was a younger person. The coffin, the casket was at the memorial service and the pastor paused, laid his hand on the coffin and asked the Lord to raise the person from the dead. That's a bold move. Now the person didn't rise up from the dead in that service, but we've heard some stories from the mission field. We've heard some accounts of some supernatural things. It's certainly not the norm but Gehazi lays the staff nonetheless, and the child doesn't awake. When Jesus was in his earthly ministry, there's a scene, I think it's in at least the three synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he's moving through the city, and he gets approached by Jairus, a synagogue official, and one of the accounts says that Jairus says, come lay your hand on my daughter, for she's deathly ill. And then another account, I think it's Matthew's account, says that the daughter had died. Don't trouble the master anymore. She's dead. 
And as Jesus is moving toward the house of Jairus, a woman with a flow of blood, you remember, uh, no doctor could cure her, said, if I can only extend my hand and grab his, the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And she did that. And she got healed 12 years with this issue. 12 years old was the little girl. 12, again, I think reminds us God's faithfulness to Israel. He goes into the room, flute players, they're playing the dirge. Uh, everybody's uh, crying. And Jesus said, stop crying. Why are you weeping? The child's not dead. She's sleeping. And the people laughed at him. <laughs> we know death. She's dead. And I love this. This is a loose translation. He booted everybody out of the house. Get out. <laughs> Shut the door. Gotta love Jesus. I think he brought uh, Peter and uh, James and John or some combination therein. And he said famously to the little girl, Talitha Kum, little girl, arise. And she opened her eyes and he restored her back to her parents. And one of the great scriptures of all time, he says, give her something to eat. Say, you're always talking about food, Pastor Michael. Well, there it is. Anyway, because it's lunchtime. <laughs> Two incredible healings, the compassion of our God. And so Elijah came into the house and behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. And he entered, and notice he shut the door. Once again, we see the door shut behind them both. It's him and Gehazi. And what did Elisha do? He prayed to the Lord. Now, Elisha was a man, a great prophet with a double portion blessing, but without Christ, we can't do anything. Without the power of God, we can't do anything. Apart from me, John 15, you can do nothing. So Elisha prayed. He cried out to the Lord. He was just a man but of course he was an anointed man and he went up and notice what he does. He laid on the child, 34. He put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands and he stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm. Now, I've never prayed like this over anybody, <laughs> just so you know. Uh, I'm not sure anybody would be particularly comfortable with this mode of prayer. I don't recommend it. However, it's a radical act of faith, is it not? He lays on top of the kid and just begins to pray. And they're met. And he returned and he walked in the house once and back and forth, you see him kind of pacing, maybe asking for God to work for more power. And he went up and he stretched himself on him again. And the lad, notice he's described as a lad, sneezed seven times. I have no idea if that means he was expelling something toxic from his lungs or if it's simply a way to say a complete healing. And on each sneeze, Elisha said, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you, God bless you. <laughs> and the lad opened his eyes. If I can steal a line from the prodigal parable. He was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Life. I mean, how amazing 
is this. We can't just simply pass it by. In Luke's account of the healing of the little girl, it says her spirit returned, Luke 8:54. This is the power of our God. And her parents were amazed. And he called Gehazi, end of the account here, and he said, call this Shunammite. She was outside. The door had been shut. I'm sure she was pacing and praying and wondering And so he called for her, and when she came into him, into that prophet's quarters, he said, take up your son. Hebrews 11.35 says, women by faith received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might attain a better resurrection. And she fell. She went in and fell at his feet, bowed herself to the ground, And she took up her son and went out, no doubt rejoicing. What an amazing account of the power of God. What an amazing gospel picture. Let's turn to Luke 7 and we're done. As you turn there, I want to paint a gospel picture. We had a debt we could not pay. Jesus Christ paid the debt. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. Jesus Christ, I want you to... Think about this image. Think about when you were born again, the the power of God. Think about the Lord coming down into your life, eye to eye, breath to breath, hand to hand. Genesis 2-7 says God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. God is an intimate God. He comes to live inside of you, to pay your debt, to make you alive again. Amen? This is the gospel. This is the good news. And some of you are saying, well, wait a minute. I've been to many memorial services and I haven't got, seen a corpse get up yet. And if one did, I don't think I would ever go to another memorial service again. I understand. But I want you to see the gospel picture. And I want you to see this last account. It's in Luke 7. It's a quick one, 11. And it says this. It came about soon afterwards, uh, after the healing of the centurion's servant, that Jesus went to a city called Nain, Luke seven eleven. His disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large multitude. Now, as Jesus approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, when Jesus saw her, he felt compassion for her. And he said to her, Do not weep. I almost see what can I do for you. And he came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, notice Elijah prayed, but Jesus just speaks. He's Messiah. He's God. I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. (laughs) I'd love footage to see what he said. (laughs) And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. I'll tell you, brethren, as I come to the end of this message, Duffy, uh, you sent me a picture of a Dodger game some years ago, and old Joseph was there with us, right? We We talked a Giants fan into going to a Dodger game. And miraculously, he ate three Dodger dogs. We thought he was going to get sick. We snapped a couple pictures. We switched his Giants hat for a Dodger hat real quick and snapped a picture. He's like, don't you you do that. So we're going to show it in church. 
and Joe is gone. Joe went to be with the Lord. And I could tell you of many names and many faces that flood my mind. And here's what I want you to see. Everything that we have lost, in quotes, in Christ is coming back to us. Our sons and our daughters, our grandparents and great-grandparents, the saints that have gone on before us, they will return to us in the resurrection. Amen? And yes, we grieve. But we grieve with hope. We comfort one another with these words. There is a resurrection coming. Jesus will call the bodies out of the tombs, if you will, and we will be alive. He is the resurrection. He is the life. Would you bow your heart with me? Father, thank you so much for the wonderful stories we see with the woman in debt and the Shunammite who lost her son. Thank you for these beautiful gospel pictures. Thank you that the power of God is still moving today. And you're still a God who touches and transforms and supplies and heals. And we have some people in our midst and some people in our congregation who need a miraculous touch. And I know many have been crying out, Lord. And we're asking for your mercy. I know uh, in these cases, there are believers crying out, Lord, for grace, for healing. There are some that are sitting in this room and they're, they're crying out for your provision, Lord. And you're a God who provides. Not always in the way that we think it should happen, but nonetheless, you provide sustaining grace. You provide power. You provide strength. And you're the giver of salvation. And if you're here with your head and heart bowed and you're not a Christian, don't try to do life without him. He came on a rescue mission to save you. He came to help. He died on that cross to help you, to help me. Won't you cry out to him? Trust in him for your salvation. Believe on his death, his resurrection. More than that, believe in who he is and what he did for you. Repent and make him your Lord and Savior. If you're a backslidden believer, come back to the Lord. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been wounded. Maybe you have question marks. We get it. But he's here. And he will welcome you back and encourage you. Lord, for this precious congregation, may you sustain. May you give grace in all the situations that are being carried up to your throne even now as we pray. Bless your people with strength. Bless your people with provision. Thank you, Lord. We love you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' mighty name.